Bormann was a name which once struck terror into the hearts of millions. As Hitler's deputy, his power was immense. At the end of the war he was put on trial, even though he had disappeared and was thought dead. How fair was that trial? Martin Bormann was born in 1900. He was the son of a post office employee. He was unafraid of committing violence and in 1923 murdered a political opponent, but he was caught and spent a year in prison. He then joined the Nazi party and attracted the eye of Hitler. When he married, the daughter of an army major, Hitler was witness at the wedding and after that his rise in the party was unstoppable. He became head of the party chancery, secretary to the Führer, a member of the Council of Ministers for the Defence of the Reich, a general in the SS and a general in the SA. During the war he recommended that brutal action be taken against the conquered peoples. When the war in Europe had been won, the Allies decided that they wished to put on trial all those whom they considered as having had principal roles in the initiation and waging of that war. They met in London and on the 8th of August 1945 issued the London Charter. This established the International Military Tribunal, the IMT, which would, within a few months, set up court at Nuremberg and defined the terms under which it would operate. The IMT wanted to demonstrate to the world the wickedness of Germany as a whole, and for this it was necessary to see a cross-section of German society in the dock, not only the generals and admirals who had led the armed forces, but also the economic and industrial leaders, the diplomatic representatives, and, of course, the political masters. Hitler was known to have committed suicide, but the person perhaps closest to Hitler was Bormann, and in the absence of his master it was his presence in the dock which was therefore considered essential. Most of the future defendants had been captured, but Bormann was an exception. Rumours circulated that he was dead, but equally there were reports of his being sighted. Without a body, no one could be certain that he was dead. This left the IMT in a pickle. One of their star targets looked like being a no-show, and if there was no trial of Bormann, the objective of the trial would be severely undermined. What should they, indeed what could they, do? This situation had been foreseen. Article 12 of the London Charter, the legal basis for the trial, provided for a defendant to be tried in his absence, in absentia, if he could not be found. The Allies, and principally the Americans, were acutely aware of the need to appear to act with scrupulous fairness. They went to enormous pains, ironically, you might think, in the light of their future actions, to ensure that widespread publicity was given to the proposed future trial of the absent defendant. Leaflets were distributed in the four zones of occupied Germany, advertisements were placed in nominated newspapers, and announcements were made on the wireless at appropriate intervals, all advising Bormann that he should appear in the Nuremberg courtroom for his trial, starting on the 20th of November 1945. If he did not appear, they warned, the trial would proceed without him. There was no response. A trial in which only the prosecution states its case before the verdict is announced is called a show trial, and this was a criticism the IMT was keen to avoid. 
On Saturday the 17th of November 1945, and just three days before the start of the trial, it was decided that if Borman did not present himself in court, as appeared likely, it would be essential for someone to make a case in his defence. Accordingly, they contacted a German lawyer, one Dr. Friedrich Berkold. Dr. Berkold had not been a member of the Nazi party, a fact which increased his acceptability to the IMT, and indeed for many years had appeared before German courts, representing dispossessed Jews, helping them, insofar as was possible, to regain their possessions which had been confiscated. It's a mark of his professionalism that he accepted the brief to defend the man who had caused so much misery to his previous clients. The challenge facing Dr. Berkold cannot be overstated. The American prosecutors had been working for six months on the case, and they were to present to the court as evidence 5,000 documents and 200,000 statements, and this was apart from the 25,000 pages of protocol which had been written. Dr. Berkeld had to familiarise himself with the evidence against his client contained within this mountain of paper, and it is reasonable to think that three months would have been insufficient, let alone three days. However, the Allies considered themselves pressed for time. They had thousands of war crimes cases to try, and they needed to get through them. They also needed convictions in order to satisfy their home publics. It was of little consequence if the justice meted out was a bit rough. After all, no one back home was likely to notice, or even care. After six years of war, pro-German sympathy was limited. The day of the trial, Tuesday the 20th of November, arrived, and Bormann, as expected, did not. The trial opened. Two alternative ways of proceeding were considered, but rejected. The first possibility was that the case against Bormann could have been left pending until such time as he was apprehended. And the second, the case for the prosecution could have been made and the trial then adjourned, again until Borman appeared. Both of these possibilities would have avoided the difficulty of a trial in absentia, and the second would have had the advantage of allowing the Allies to put before the world the evils which they believed Borman to have committed. But both were rejected. Borman was to be tried in absentia. He was charged with three counts as defined in the London Charter. These were Count 1, Conspiracy to Wage of War of Aggression, Count 3, War Crimes, and Count 4, Crimes Against Humanity. I have mentioned elsewhere in this series of podcasts criticisms of the charges, and I shall say here briefly only that two of the charges, that of conspiring to wage a war of aggression and crimes against humanity, came into existence only with the declaration of the London Charter, that is to say, on the 8th of August 1945, some three months after the war in Europe had come to an end. The critics of the Nuremberg trials, and of many of the other war crimes trials held after the Second World War, therefore claimed that the defendants were being tried under a law taking effect retroactively, and this, they claim, was neither just nor fair. On the 15th of October, 1946, the court announced its verdict. Borman, who was still at large, was found guilty of war crimes and crimes against humanity, but not guilty of conspiring to wage a war of aggression. He was sentenced to death by hanging. Let's now look at some of the law behind these facts and start with the verdict. There was no appeals process. 
A fundamental right accorded to convicted defendants in most jurisdictions is the right to challenge their conviction in a higher court if they consider the initial decision to have been improperly made. That right was denied to the defendants of Nuremberg, where the court's finding was final. The IMT was at the same time both a court of first instance and of final appeal. That suited the Allies, whose political objectives were to hang their enemies, and as many of them as possible. It was different in other war crimes trials, those of minor criminals, where the rules were often those of a court-martial. Those verdicts were subject to review by a higher authority. This gave a measure of protection to the defendant, and that protection could be valuable. As an example, at the trial of Joachim Piper and others, which I describe more fully in my podcast on Piper, of the 43 death sentences handed down, 31 were commuted by the reviewing general, and 17 of the remaining 30 convictions, where a prison sentence had been awarded, were overturned. At the IMT, no such protection was available. With the absence of an appeals process, the court was clearly nervous about sentencing Borman to death and leaving matters there. After all, Borman might have had cogent evidence in his defence. The Russian judge, in reading the verdict, said, and here I quote, If Borman is not dead and is later apprehended, the Control Council for Germany may, under Article 29 of the Charter, consider any facts in mitigation and alter or reduce his sentence if deemed proper. I should say that the Control Council for Germany was the body set up by the Allies to govern Germany after the war. But this reference to Article 12 is just PR, and bad PR at that, for two reasons. It suggests that if Bormann were ever found, he might mention facts which would support an alteration or reduction in the sentence. If that was the case, then clearly the IMT must have overestimated the gravity of the offence which he had committed, that is, it had made a mistake. The embarrassing question which would then follow is, if the IMT can make a mistake as to the punishment, could it not also make a mistake as to the verdict? The second adverse inference to be drawn from this statement is that it was made only in relation to Borman. There were 21 other defendants, and each had the same right to the benefits of Article 29, if applicable, as Borman. By making this statement in respect only of Borman, the IMT intimates unease at the sentence which it had imposed on Borman, the only defendant tried in absentia, but not the other defendants, tried when present. Is the IMT unsure of the fairness of trials in absentia? But let's look at Article 29. It gave the Control Council for Germany the right to reduce or otherwise alter the sentences of those convicted by the IMT. But, crucially, it did not impose a duty on the Control Council to review the sentences, and it gave no authority to the Control Council to overthrow a verdict. The fact is that once Bormann's trial had taken place, there was no procedure for him to have the verdict overturned and he had no right to put his side of the matter to the Control Council with a view to achieving a lighter sentence. In my view, Article 29 would have given Bormann very little comfort. 
And now I want to deal with the concept of trying someone in their absence. In 1945, there was a very strongly held principle in both Britain and America that no one facing a capital charge, or indeed any other serious penalty, could be tried in absentia. The reasoning was simple. It flew in the face of natural justice. An accused person had the right to hear what he was being charged with, and a corresponding right to put his side of the story. It has ever been thus. It was put eloquently by the future Elizabeth I in a letter written on the 17th of March 1554 to her sister Mary, the Queen, a letter which is now called the Tide Letter. It saved her life. That right to be present at one's trial has been passed on through the common law jurisdictions of England, the Dominions and Commonwealth, and the United States, to the International Criminal Court, the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia and Rwanda, and also to the Special Court for Sierra Leone. It is to be found in the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, and in the European Convention on Human Rights, and in the American Convention on Human Rights. The position in the United States, which was the principal architect of the IMT, is strongly prohibitive of in absentia trials. In 1791, the United States adopted the Fifth Amendment to its Constitution, and this conferred a right on defendants to be present in court when they stood to lose their life, liberty or property. It is about what is called due process. A century later, in 1884, the United States Supreme Court further strengthened that prohibition. It ruled that, here I quote, the legislature has deemed it essential to the protection of one whose life or liberty is involved in a prosecution for felony that he shall be personally present at the trial, that is, at every stage of the trial when his substantial rights may be affected by the proceedings against him. Unquote. In some jurisdictions it is possible to waive this right, but a court will permit a waiver only when it is satisfied that the defendant has a full understanding of the implications and the bar for that understanding is set high. In the United States, it is so high that what might perhaps once have been a right is now in effect an obligation. This became starkly clear when, in 2010, Roman Polanski, a film director living in Switzerland, was charged by a Californian court with sexual offences against children. He asked the court to try him in absentia. Polanski is a knowledgeable, intelligent and rich man, and he was presumably advised by highly competent lawyers. There can be little doubt that he understood fully the implications of his request. Nevertheless, the court refused. A right was a duty. I suggest that without Borman's presence, a fair trial was impossible. The Americans thought it impossible to hold a fair trial for Polanski when he was absent. How could it be fair to do just that for Bormann? How is it fair and just to do something in Nuremberg, which it is not fair and just to do in California? The court then found itself in another mess. Article 16 of the Charter says, In order to ensure fair trial for the defendants, and then continues, a copy of the indictment shall be furnished to the defendant at reasonable time before the trial. The indictment is the document which tells the defendant what he is charged with. The easiest interpretation of Article 16 
is that the organisers of the trial thought that if the defendants were not informed a reasonable time before the trial of the charge against them, then the ensuing trial might not be, and perhaps would not be, fair. That sounds reasonable. You can't put a man in the dock and only then tell him what he is charged with. He would have no time to prepare a defence. But Article 12 gave the tribunal the right to take proceedings against a person charged with crimes set out in this charter in his absence. But how can a fair trial take place of a defendant who cannot be found? Article 16 requires a copy of the indictment to be served on the defendant, and if the defendant cannot be found, the indictment cannot be served. The two articles sit very uncomfortably in the same document. Suppose that shortly after his arrest, one of the defendants had had an accident and was in a coma. In such a state, he would not be capable of accepting a service of the indictment. Did the IMT therefore have authority under Article 12 to waive the requirement to serve a copy of the indictment and try him in absentia? Do you think that he would feel that he had had a fair trial when he eventually came out of the coma, perhaps to be told that he had been found guilty and sentenced to death? My guess is that he would not, and I believe that this is the way most people see the situation. What, then, is the difference between a defendant in a coma in a prison hospital and a defendant who may or may not be in a coma in a place which is unknown to the court? On my reading of matters, it looks as though the court was aware of this trap. What they needed was a fiction, and they found one. Why not assume that Borman had agreed to be tried in absentia, that is, that he had waived his rights to receive the indictment and to be present in court? As I have said earlier, IMT officials went to great pains to do everything possible to ensure that Borman had been made aware of the cases against him. They put announcements on the wireless and advertisements in the newspapers. It was, they might well have claimed, inconceivable that he did not know of his impending trial, and his non-appearance, they might have argued, constituted a voluntary waiver by him of his right to be present. Of course, as we have seen with the Polanski case, that would not have washed with an American court. Let us be clear. There was no point in making the newspaper and wireless announcements telling Borman that he should present himself at Nuremberg, and it was necessary for him to know of the trial for it to be fair. The only reason to make these announcements was to be able to say that Borman had been warned and had absented himself from the trial voluntarily. It sounds a plausible argument. A defendant in one of the Nuremberg cells might have said that the whole matter bored him because he could foresee the outcome. He realised that his life was at stake, but he would prefer to be left alone to, say, read a book. If appearing in court is a right, not a duty, then that would constitute a waiver of his right. But can the same be said about Borman? The basis of the argument that he was aware of the impending trial is open to dispute. How could it be known, as opposed to being merely guessed, that he had seen or heard any of the published notices? Without knowing that he was to be tried, he could hardly waive his right to be present. And then the court acted in a manner which may easily be thought improper. Dr. Bergold tried to have the case against his client discontinued, because all the available evidence indicated that Borman was dead, but his application was refused on the grounds that it could not be proven that Borman was dead. By making this ruling, 
the IMT neatly placed itself in the contradictory position of accepting as true a highly likely possibility that Borman, if alive, would have known about this trial, and rejecting as untrue the equally likely possibility that Borman was dead. Inconsistency is not the touchstone of fairness. We should now say a few words about the implications of a defendant who is not present. I think it's obvious that unless you give the defendant a chance to speak for himself or, or through his lawyer, you can have no certain idea that what you think he might say is in fact what he would say. And that is why trials in absentia are contrary to natural justice. Dr. Bergold grasped this point fully. On Saturday, the 29th of June, 1946, he told the court, and here I quote, It is not negligence on my part that I present so little, but it is the inability to find anything positive from the available documents without the assistance of the defendant. Unquote. Without the assistance of the defendant. In other words, I have no knowledge of what the defendant would wish you to know. And so Borman was to be judged on what Bergold thought he might say. Now I suppose it's possible to argue that the facts, which were supported by a significant amount of written evidence, were clear and incontrovertible. That may be true, but only to a point, and the point is a significant one. Two ingredients must be present if a crime is to be committed. The first is the guilty act, the actus reus, as lawyers call it. This is usually quite easy to identify from the evidence. Ten independent and trustworthy witnesses state that the accused came into the room, pointed the gun at his victim and pulled the trigger. What is less easy to know is the second ingredient, the intention of the accused to perform a guilty action, the mens rea. The accused might, if he chose to go into the witness box, say that he was sleepwalking or thought that the victim was about to kill him, and this statement, if accepted by the jury, would, if the charge were one of murder, be enough to bring a verdict of not guilty. In the case of Borman, Bergold had no idea what Borman might have said about the mens rea, and he could say nothing of value on this topic in Borman's defence. The four judges had to guess. In a criminal trial, where a guilty verdict depends on the case against the accused being proved beyond all reasonable doubt, that is far from satisfactory. In summary, it appears that Borman was placed on trial under terms which would not have been accepted in Britain or America, he was convicted on the basis of a defence made by a man whom he had never met, and he was then sentenced to death, a sentence from which there was no appeal. In these circumstances, it seems almost irrelevant that the law under which he was convicted was retroactive. Be aware that what I have said is not a defence of Borman. From all accounts, he performed many odious and reprehensible acts, and I do not question that if it could be proven that he had broken the law, he should have been punished. What I do question, however, is whether the trial which the Allies mounted was a fair one. It can be that a guilty man is found guilty by an unfair trial. You may perhaps call that just, but it is certainly not fair. The Borman trial had many shortcomings. If those shortcomings are of a magnitude such that his trial cannot be called fair, then I have difficulty in seeing how its findings can be called fair and and I accept that this is a bit of pill to swallow, we will have acted no better than the Nazis whom we criticised and wished to punish. 
Was Bormann's trial fair? Was his guilt proven? You must form your own view. 